last Lord's Day, I indicated that one of the most precious things about the life of an individual, especially in the eyes of his or her parents, is the time when they decide on a name for the new baby that's being born. And we took time last week to look at the naming of Jesus, Jesus and Emmanuel being the special names that were given to Mary's baby. Another thing that usually takes place in our day and age about uh, the time a baby is born, usually before, sometimes after, is the giving of a baby shower, as they call it, an opportunity to give presents, uh, not only to show that you love and care for the new family, but hopefully presents that will prove helpful in some way to the mother and to the child in the uh, early weeks and months of the life of the baby. The Bible tells us that at the time of Jesus' birth, there was a very costly shower, if you can put it that way, that was given for Jesus, but it was a shower that was put on by some very unlikely people and gifts that were not at all practical when it comes to um, the sorts of things we give today, like bibs and high chairs and all the rest. And I'd like to read for you the story of the very costly shower that was given for Mary's baby and talk about the significance of it as we see it in Matthew, the second chapter, verses 1 to 12. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew, chapter 2, where we'll read the first 12 verses. Hear now the word of God. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written through the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, land of Judah, art in no wise least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth a governor who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod privately called the Magi and learned of them exactly what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search out exactly concerning the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word, that I may also come and worship him. And they, having heard the king, went their way. And lo, the star which they saw in its rising went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And they came into the house and saw the young child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And thus far the reading of God's word. This story is so familiar to all of us, undoubtedly is one of the most common in our culture, uh, that is taught to children, not only as background to Christmas, but as simply one of the things that's somewhat sleeping in the memory of our race. I mean, every generation of children uh, in the Western world since its Christianization has heard this story. We've made a great deal of it. 
In fact, we've made a great deal of the story that was never intended by the author of the story. Um, we have here the story of the wise men from the East who came to see the baby Jesus. And we have, I have in my home, uh, creche scenes where we have a combination of shepherds and magi, wise men, from the East who are gathered together about the stable where Jesus is laid in the manger. A very unlikely situation, seeing that the story tells us they entered a house where Jesus was. Mary and the family had, by the time the Magi arrived, moved out of the stable. Probably they were there one or two nights or days, and then finally room was found in an inn or another home or house, and they moved into it. And this is where the Magi find them. We have a lot of misconceptions about the Magi, which I'd like to uh, set straight this morning as well. In the first place, the Magi are often called, in fact, one of the ways the word is translated from the Greek is wise men. And then from our conception of what a wise man is, we have such things as bumper stickers that say at this time of year, wise men still seek him. Well, the intention of such bumper stickers and the message that's found there is all well and good, but not true to the story. Matthew is not saying that wise men found him. Matthew is saying even pagans worshipped him. What's wrong with the Jews? Matthew says, here is the king of the Jews, David's royal son, finally born according to prophetic word, and Herod and the Jews want nothing but to kill him, where it takes pagans from the east, astrologers, who come and bow down before him and recognize his true significance and status. It's not that they were so wise, it was that they were so pagan that is important, and that they bowed down before him when others sought to take his life. We also have the idea that there were three such wise men or magi. Um, I have yet to see a Christmas scene, a creche set, where there were more than three of these men from the East. However, there is no reason whatsoever, in terms of the historical account and narrative given us by Matthew, to think that there were three wise men. I'm going to indicate to you in the course of telling this story with a little more accuracy, I hope, that, that very likely there were many more wise men than just three. And not only wise men, undoubtedly a cavalry along with them. And I'll explain why that must have been the case as well. Um, we do not know the names of the alleged three wise men, although tradition has given them names, and you may have memorized them in the past, but uh, that, too, is not part of this story. I'd like you, then, I'd invite you to come back and, and look at this story of the costly shower given to Mary's baby, and we'll try to put it in its proper historical perspective, and then, at the end, draw some theological conclusions that will be very close to our heart. Matthew 2, verse 1 begins, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. It's very interesting to me that Matthew does not dwell on the details of Jesus' birth. In fact, so insignificant are those details that he doesn't even give it a, sem uh, a separate clause in the Greek. He doesn't say, and Jesus was born, period, and now here are some details about that. It's just part of what's called a genitive absolute expression. It's just, and when Jesus was born. Now let's get on to what Matthew wants to focus on. When Jesus was born, it was in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. 
When Jesus was born, it was in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Why the significance of Bethlehem? Because Bethlehem was known universally to the Jews as the town of David. It was where David was born. Remember when David was uh, at battle at one point, he said he longed for a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem. And his three mighty men fought their ways across the enemy lines to get to Bethlehem to bring back water to David. Water which was so precious that David said he dare not drink it, and he poured it out before the Lord as an offering to God because of what his mighty men had done for him. But Bethlehem was precious to David and came to be known as David's town. He ruled from Jerusalem, but Bethlehem was David's town. Bethlehem would be the town from which David's royal son, the grand messianic fulfillment of all that David was intended to be, would finally be born. Bethlehem is very significant. Matthew tells us it was Bethlehem of Judea. In fact, he tells us that three times in the course of 12 verses. You would think we finally gotten the point. We know which Bethlehem it is. We know what province it's in. But Matthew keeps putting that before us. It's Bethlehem of Judea, Bethlehem in Judah, because you see, it's through Judah, the tribe of Judah, that the royal son was to be born. The king of God's promise was going to come through that particular region and tribe. And so Matthew, true to the Christology that he is setting out in his gospel, continues to stress that Jesus is the son of David through the tribe of Judah, the intended king of the Jews. But then you see he says something which is uh, the direct contrast to that. He says, in the days of Herod the king. Herod the king. This Herod, called Herod the Great, because he was the father of a line of Herodian rulers. Herod the Great was a very cruel and wicked, though clever, politician. Uh, history, uh, especially through the accounts of Josephus and the Roman historians Tacitus and others. History tells us a great deal about the character of Herod. His father was Antipater. Antipater was an Idumean, by which we mean he was an Edomite, by which we mean a descendant of Esau. And so, not a friend to the Jews, because the Jews were descendants of Isaac and Jacob not Esau. Antipater, the descendant of Esau, curried favor among the Romans because, you see, they had a policy that in their conquered lands, if they could find native vassal rulers, they were glad to use people from the locality to rule over that area under Rome. Antipater, seeing this, won the favor of the Romans and was appointed over the area of Syria and Palestine. He, in turn, appointed his two sons as governors, and he made Herod, his son, governor of Palestine. Herod was appointed governor of Palestine when he was but 25 years old. Herod was very, very jealous for his position and very revengeful of any suggestion or suspicion that somebody was trying to take away his rule. In fact, in his lifetime, Herod killed two of his wives and at least three of his own sons, his own flesh and blood, because he suspected them of trying to depose him. In fact, he killed uh, Mariamne, who was his favorite wife, on a mere suspicion that was reported to him that she was trying to overthrow him, and her two brothers as well. 
five days before his own death, as he lay on his deathbed, he had one of his favorite sons killed upon the suspicion that his son was trying to take the throne before it was time for him to do so. Herod was insanely jealous of his position. He ruled by means of secret police, which is not a way to curry favor with the people, obviously. He imposed a curfew on the Jews, lest they be out at night and plot against him. He imposed heavy taxes, and then would turn around, almost in schizophrenic fashion, and try to win their favor by giving away free grain at times of famine, and by refurbishing and rebuilding the Jewish temple. In fact, he did a, a, a mighty job in that, uh, and he took credit for it and expected the Jews to love him for it. This Herod the Great is known from history to have this kind of a character. But what we fail to see often enough because we aren't students of ancient history is the relationship of Herod to such people as the Magi. And that requires a little bit of discussion then. So if you can clear the register, let's go back and ask, who are these Magi from the East? Magi is the plural form of the word magus. What is a magus? Well, in the book of Acts, the word appears in its most common form of that day simply for a magician. A magus is a man who has special occult powers. But that isn't their origin. The Magi were originally a tribe among the Medes and the Persians, actually a Median tribe, that received a hereditary priesthood that carried with it occult duties and sacerdotal duties. In fact, the Magi are so important that we read of one Rab Magi in the book of Jeremiah, which in Hebrew means the chief of the Magi, the chief of the Magi. They had positions in the royal court because kings looked to them to receive special counsel to make political decisions. Special counsel because the Magi could read the stars, because the Magi were able to interpret dreams, and because they had these kind of occult powers and insight. The Magi were very important throughout the Persian Empire in particular. In fact, we read that uh, Xerxes, who would later marry Esther, consulted the Magi before he went to battle against Greece. Okay. The Magi were close to the royal throne. They were consultants of the king. And by the time of three, about 300 years before Christ, in the Parthian Empire, Parthia is an empire that's east of Assyria, so it's really east. In terms of the Roman Empire, Assyria and Armenia are the outer boundaries of the civilized world, and Parthia is beyond that, to the east. In the Parthian Empire, which is part of northwestern Persia, the Magi were so important that there was a council, a constitutional council called the Megasthenes, that were in charge of deposing kings and choosing new kings, and as well as offering political advice as consultants of the king in running the government. Now, in the Megasthenes, in that council, there were two houses, the higher and the lower, and the higher house had to be occupied by members of the Magian hierarchy. That is to say, the Magi were the kingmakers in Parthia. They had the leading hand in choosing kings. Okay, now I've told you about Herod the Great, something of his character and his insane jealousy for his rule. I've told you something about the Magi and how they read the stars and give advice to kings and how they become politically important in choosing kings. 
Now we need to bring these two stories together and come right down to the days in which Herod was appointed. Herod was appointed governor of Palestine by his father, but that didn't make him a ruler. For you see, the Jews wanted nothing to do with this cruel idiomite as their ruler. And so what happened is the Romans, in the days of Pompey and Crassus in particular, the Romans had to fight the Parthians and the Jews sided with the Parthians. The Jews and the Parthians who have Persian background, the Persians, remember, from long ago have been very friendly to the Jews. Cyrus, the Persian emperor, is the one who let the Jews go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple and walls and so forth. So the Jews and the Persians have a long history of cooperating and supporting one another. But in the days of uh, the expansion of the Roman Empire, Pompey and Crassus fight the Parthians and are miserably, miserably defeated. The Parthians occupy Syria and Palestine and even Jerusalem for a time until Mark Anthony drives them out. And then another Parthian invasion comes and drives out all Roman influence in the area, including Herod, who has to flee to Alexandria and from Alexandria to Rome. The Parthians are finally um, pushed out of the way and the Romans reestablish their uh, rule in the area of Palestine. While he is in Rome, Herod the Great, who by the way was so clever, he could shift his uh, loyalty from Mark Anthony to Augustus and apparently be persuasive enough of his sincerity that he was received by Augustus. He goes and he bribes officials where he needs to and he says the right words and finally gets to Augustus and he is named, and this is what brings us back to our story, King of the Jews. And now we have Herod the Great, King of the Jews, with Roman imperial support behind him, coming back, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. It took him three years, however, to get into Jerusalem. He had to fight his way into the city. It took five months laying siege to the city for him to get inside the walls. And so you see what kind of rule this man had? I mean, he had to flee before the Parthians, before the Persians. He had to flee. He had to go to Rome. There he's named king of the Jews. And the Jews don't want him to be their king. They fight, and he has to use force of arms to finally have a place from which to rule Palestine. This is the Herod that the Magi from Persia come to, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now do you understand verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2? When Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. Of course he was troubled. These magi from the Parthian Empire were kingmakers. They were the ones who would be in the process of finding a king. And they come looking for one named King of the Jews. That's his title, after all. And he's already had trouble with the Parthians and with the Jews combined. And so Herod, in a mad zeal to maintain his position is going to eventually slaughter the infants of Bethlehem up to two years old. By the way, many commentators will tell you things such as Jesus must have been approaching two years old because he asked the, the wise men, the magi, what time the star appeared and he killed the infants up to two years old so Jesus must have been a young boy. Not true. Not true to Herod's character at all. 
Herod undoubtedly did calculate at what time generally the child would have been born by asking when the star appeared. But then what Herod did is he added quite a bit as a margin of error. Herod was not about to make a mistake and have some claimant to the Jewish throne live because he had miscalculated by a month or two. He undoubtedly added probably a year, 12, 13, 14 months to what he had to, to make sure that no infant would live that would be able to claim this title. Well, so you know who the Magi are. They're Persian astrologers, kingmakers from the Parthian Empire who come to Jerusalem, disturb Herod, the king, with the indication that a baby had been born who would be king of the Jews. What about the star of Bethlehem? According to verse 2 of our reading, the Magi say, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and then most of your translations will say, in the east. That's unfortunate because Matthew, when he uses the Greek word that's crucial here, you don't need to know what that word is, but when he uses that word to mean in the sun rising, in the rising from the east, he uses it in the plural. In fact, that's exactly what you find in the um, first verse, wise men from the east, from the sun rising. However, here he doesn't use it in the plural, he uses it in the singular sense, and thus it means we saw his star at its rising, not, at the, not from the east or where the sun rises, but the star at its rising was seen. You would expect astrologers to be paying attention to the stars, right? And they saw something in the sky, not to the east, which would point them the wrong direction, but over toward Jerusalem and Bethlehem, it would turn out. They saw something in the star, in, in the sky, that would concern them. Why would they associate the rising of a star with the birth of a king? Well, it's symbolic in the ancient world in the first place. And there is an, another factor to re be remembered. The Magi were active in the days of the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, we read that Daniel was appointed chief over the magicians, undoubtedly over the Magi in the Babylonian and later Persian empires. And Daniel, as you know, is one of the key prophets of the Old Testament who prophesied of a messianic king who would come and have worldwide dominion. Moreover, in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 24, we read of the prophecy of Balaam. Balaam is, and this is fascinating to me, is called by the Jewish philosopher Philo a magus. And we learn in chapter 23 of Numbers that he was from the east, a magus from the east. Balaam comes and he prophesies with these words in Numbers um, 24. We learn that one is going to come forth from Israel who is going to rule and this is indicated in terms of the star rising. Verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. There shall come forth a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and he shall smite through the corners of Moab and break down all the sons of tumult. So significant was this in the theology of the Jews that in the first century A.D., after the time of Christ, a, a false messiah among the Jews, one Bar Kokhba, 
was called son of the star son of the star in reference to Balaam's prophecy that the Messiah would come forth as a ruler from Israel in connection with his star rising well we put all this together and we can understand how some strange phenomena in the sky over in the region of Jerusalem led the Magi in Persia to suspect that maybe these prophecies they had heard from the Jews about a king were coming to pass and so they come to Jerusalem to search it out a word more about that star. What was that star? Some say it was a, a unique um, coalition of uh, Saturn and Jupiter, uh, which would, if you study astrology, have a very important symbolic meaning. I don't understand all of that myself, but in fact, some people have gotten so carried away with this, a book was written entitled The Gospel and the Stars in which if you study all the astrological houses and signs and this sort of thing you would understand that this unique combination which in history apparently only happened at one time uh, would indicate a, uh, the birth of a king and so forth and so on um, another interpretation is that it was a comet another interpretation the one which I prefer is that it was simply a miraculous luminary in the sky that God used for this purpose. And the reason I believe that is the interpretation to be preferred is that um, this led them to Jerusalem, to be sure, but beyond that, and this is more fascinating, after Herod told them to go to Bethlehem, the star led them over the place where the young child was. And you see, some combination of Saturn and Jupiter is not going to tell you what house in which to find this baby and the idea that it led them to Bethlehem is really quite futile because they already knew they were going to Bethlehem Herod told them to go to Bethlehem that's what the Jewish prophets had said and so when we learned that it, they saw the star at its rising and that it could take them to a particular house I, I simply uh, must believe that it was a miraculous uh, luminary or a star as it would be called in the sky that uh, led them and when they saw it they rejoiced with exceeding great joy they were getting really excited now all their journeying all their efforts were going to pay off and they were going to find this new king of the Jews verse 11 says and they came into the house and saw the young child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him and opening their treasures they offered unto him gifts gold frankincense and myrrh why these particular gifts why gold frankincense and myrrh many symbolic interpretations have been offered but I think Matthew is stressing something here having to do with Jesus being the true son of David and the Messiah prophesied of the Old Testament if we turn to the 72nd Psalm Psalm 72 and look at verses 10 and 15 we'll get some idea of the background in the Old Testament for this giving of costly gifts to the Messiah Psalm 72 is one of the most beautiful Psalms of David written for Solomon or perhaps written by Solomon a psalm talking about the Davidic king that would come to rule as the Messiah in Psalm 72, verse 10, we read, The kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall render tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Verse 15, And he shall live 
and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba, and men shall pray for him continually. They shall bless him all the day long. What the psalmist is saying is Gentile kings will fall down before the Messiah and they will bring him gold as part of their tribute. Now remember, this is a psalm written either for Solomon immediately, the Messiah uh, in the far distance, or maybe a psalm written by Solomon. When you look at the, what's called the Song of Solomon, actually the Song of Songs in Hebrew, Solomon is described as perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. And so Jesus, when he is born, has a very costly shower thrown for him. Gentile kingmakers, astrologers from the east, come bearing the gifts the Old Testament had expected the son of David to enjoy. Gold from pagan kings, frankincense and myrrh for the son of David, a Solomon, as it were, who would rule over God's people. Now, what is the point of all this? Why is Matthew telling us this? Not because wise men still seek him, as I told you. Matthew's telling us this because he's preparing for the rejection of Jesus. That's really sad. That's really kind of a, a downer. You say, that's not what we want to hear about at Christmas season. This is supposed to be a time of love and joy and peace on earth, right? Well, Matthew didn't see it that way. Matthew was preparing for the fact that Herod and the pagan rulers who claimed to be kings and all those in Jerusalem would one day reject the Messiah and put him to death. Matthew is saying it takes not wise men but it takes Gentiles from outside the fold and those who don't have the oracles of God. It takes people in the lowest and most humble of positions, the least likely candidates, it takes them to come and to present the most costly gifts because they recognize in this baby the king, the divine king, the promised king over all the earth. And what do these royal men do? You know, when they came to Jerusalem, the Magi undoubtedly came in what was the Persian practice, came in all their oriental pomp and circumstance. They came with their royal robes and their coned hats. They came showing the opulence of the Parthian Empire. And because Parthia was a threat to Rome, they undoubtedly had a cavalry who accompanied them to make sure that, one, bandits wouldn't take their gold, frankincense, and myrrh, very costly gifts, and more importantly, that Roman soldiers wouldn't stop their penetration of the Roman area. And so what we see coming into Jerusalem one day are a number of magi, not three, undoubtedly a dozen or so, with a small troop of Parthian soldiers to protect them. And with all this pomp and circumstance and protection and all this, they come to Bethlehem and the Bible says they fell down and worshipped the baby. Boy, this is a strange shower. We may say nice things about babies that are born today, but we don't do this. Here we have kingmakers, royal men with costly gifts, looking at a baby and falling on their faces before him. This reminds us, of course, of the gift-giving during this season of the year. 
I was once asked by one of my children, why do we give gifts at Christmas time? Was it because the Magi gave gifts to the baby Jesus? And I suppose some might associate it with that background, but I think more importantly, the Magi gave the most costly gifts they could because God had given the most costly gift he could. We give gifts because God did. And, you know, it's really amazing. The Santa Claus story that is popular this time of year is the sort of thing people get caught up in. And for a long time I looked upon it as kind of a, uh, uh, a distraction, but not terribly uh, worrisome. I didn't want to be a nag and talk about having no reference to Santa Claus and all that, although we don't teach our children about that in our home. I mean, we do tell them other fairy tale type stories, and when we go to Disneyland, we don't mind their picture being taken with these storybook creatures and all that. There's no need to put away with all stories and all that, although it's unfortunate that it was at Christmas time and distracts. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'm getting older and grouchier, or maybe I'm just learning a lot more theologically about what, what really informs people um, in their way of thinking about God. But I think the Santa Claus story is such a terrible, terrible story now. And not only because he has divine qualities, he sees everybody, and he can be so many different places instantaneously and all that. No, what bothers me is something that uh, goes much deeper. I don't think children think so much about that, but you know what they do think about? They think about sitting on Santa's lap and asking for all of these good things and Santa asking, have you been a good little boy? And you know, there's something that's permanently ingrained in the synapses of the brain from that point on. A thinking that says good gifts come from being a good boy. A message that teaches that we must earn what we're going to get. In fact, we even have to deceive our parents for the last few weeks or months before Christmas. We have to put on our best behavior and our best front so that everybody will think we're really good and we'll get all the things we want. See, our way of thinking is informed by that. That's natural to the, to the natural man to suspect that the gods or God, whatever it may be, and it's going to favor them only if they have earned it. But the Christmas story is exactly the opposite. Don't you see? It's exactly wrong to say God gives good gifts to good people. The Christmas story is that God gave the best gift to the worst of people. They hadn't earned it. They couldn't have asked for a Messiah and said, look, here's the bargain, here's the covenant. We've kept the law. You must now give us your son. No, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And how was he welcomed into this world? Were the kings of the world waiting for him and ready to worship him? Were the people of God, the Jews who had been given the covenant and the prophecies and all that, were they prepared for this? No, they were troubled with Herod that there might be some claimant to the throne. It took pagans from the east to come in who shouldn't have been in a position like this at all. God gives his best to the worst. That's the message of Christmas. That's what he's done for us. And what do we give back to him? I suggest we can do no better than what the wise men did. No better than the Magi from the East. We can do what the world finds absolutely preposterous, absurd, and philosophically wrong. 
we can bow down and we can say, yes, that baby somehow in flesh and blood, that baby in swaddling clothes, that baby lying in a feed trough for cattle, is the Lord of glory and the Savior of men. God gave his best, and his best was rejected of men. Let's learn this Christmas to be like the Magi, to bow down and see him for what he truly is, and to thank God that he doesn't give us the Savior because we're good, but because we're bad. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this costly, costly gift that we see given to your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the message of it that we found in the scriptures because we see in Jesus the true king, the king who is far more than even Solomon as the son of David, the one who would fulfill all that had been promised to David as the Messiah. And we thank you that he came into lowly circumstances though he was the Lord of glory. And above all, we thank you, Father, that you gave us your own beloved son, your very best, not because we had been good, not because we had earned it, not because we had done anything to attract your attention or to win your favor, but because you loved us. We thank you for the love of this Christmas season. We pray it wouldn't be cheapened and commercialized, that it wouldn't be lost in the very worldly and humanistic understandings of love that are abound about us, that we see on TV and hear in so many songs. Lord, we pray that we'd understand the true love of the Christmas season, that you loved us before we loved you, that you loved us while we were yet sinners. We thank you for this precious gift. In Jesus' name, amen.